Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. Welcome to Marion. Glad to have you here today. Uh, last week started out talking about uh, community, and uh, I get to conclude that today. But all of this, the last five weeks, has been part of our Back to School special. Uh, so if you missed that, you can go back online and find it. Uh, or maybe you don't want to go back online and find it. But uh, today is maybe yesterday or last week was the lighter side of community, and this side's maybe the darker side or maybe the possible problems with community. Uh, as we discuss community, uh, we'll see how we not only are part of that problem, we participate in the problem, but we're also part of the solution. There was once some ladies' Black Friday shopping, and as one of them walked around the store, uh, one of the pallets in the middle of the store became available for purchase. So I don't know if you've ever Black Friday shopped, but sometimes they have wrapped pallets in the middle of the store, and then they unwrap them, and then it's chaos. Well, as one of the gals walked by the pallets, it became available for purchase, and out of quick reaction and everybody else grabbing something, she decided to grab one too. She made her way to the checkout, she purchased it, and the other ladies with her got in the car and say, what did you get? And she said, I don't know, but I bought it. A lot of other people wanted it, so I thought I'd better get mine too. The concoction of quick thinking or lack of thinking and emotion sometimes gets us in trouble. I can't tell you how many times I've asked teenagers and seen parents ask teenagers, why did you do that? What were you thinking? I don't know. And we've probably all been there as well. I don't know. Uh, and so selfishness mixed in with emotions can help us do some crazy, crazy things. And we'll see that in our story today. Uh, last week we read in Acts that the early part of the church had everything in common. They were like-minded. Uh, they had similar goals. And we'll continue reading that and part of that today. Uh, and then we'll discover how it goes rogue. Uh, as we read, uh, we'll pick up where we read last week, and this week we'll, we'll read in Acts chapter 4. Uh, so we're headed back into Acts chapter 4. Uh, there's Bibles out there. I won't have it for you on the screen, partially because I didn't put slides in, and partially because we get enough screen time, right? Okay, good. Acts chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 32. There's Bibles, I think, almost in every pew if there's not. Shame on my kids who were supposed to put one every pew. I'm kidding. That's on me. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. I still hear a few pages. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. It says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that, that any of the possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerful at work in, in them all that there was no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to any one of them who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he, field he had owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So it sounds very similar to where we were last week. 
Uh, it's, it's, some of the words are almost identical, but this is even a different part in the Bible. I'm, I'm not making us reread something. It's there again. And I always feel like when something is duplicated in the Bible, somebody went through a lot of work to put it there twice. And so I think it's worth reading a second time. And at the very end there, we hear, learn about a man named Barnabas who goes and sells a piece of land, puts it at the apostles' feet, and just as a little side nugget, the Bible says that there was no needy among them. That'd be a great world to live in, wouldn't it? But let's flip over to chapter 5, because it's about to change. It's about to go rogue. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back a part of the money himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? After it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. A great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about what had happened in these events. It sounds like a lot's going on here, and there is a lot going on. Uh, as we read through the Acts, Acts just in itself, there's a lot going on. It's very busy. Um, but Ananias and Sapphira saw the respect that Barnabas got for selling his property, and they wanted the same thing for themselves. So they sell their property for one price, one price and say they're giving all, see the air quotes, all the money to the church. But they held some funds back. The sin isn't holding the funds back. They were able to give as much as they wanted or as much as they pleased or as little as they pleased. The sin was the deceit. God dealt with seemingly dealt pretty harshly with Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, they wanted the respect. They wanted what, what things looked like for, for Barnabas. Um, but that's not really the way that they were. Now, in our current world, it seems odd that a sin would be dealt with so harshly. Uh, I read several commentaries on this, and most of them agreed that Ananias and Sapphira probably died of a heart attack due to the idea that their sin had not only been found out, but who they sinned against. Although sin happens all the time uh, and, happen, and had happened all the time, the sin of this caliber was, was not normal. Uh, and it was found out was even less normal. As a side note, I think it's also amazing how God uses Peter here. Peter, having a history of lying himself, is now a human lie detector, and God gets to use him. But that's just a little side nugget. God deals with their deceit. It seems so harshly. 
But God can't afford corruption at this point in the church. I brought uh, this tree. It's a, it's, a, it's a real tree. I stole it right out of Whitney's office. She's not here to stop me. And uh, truth be told, the uh, first, uh, I don't know, three months she was here, I thought it was real until I touched it one day. So here's this tree, and you can see the, uh, the shaft of the tree, the trunk of the tree, uh, and I like to call this tree the church, all right? So the early church is, is somewhere down in here. It's just growing, just sprouting, and it hasn't done all this blossom business yet. And so I think the reason, and this is just Ike maybe possibly spitballing with some educated guessing, I think the reason why God allows Ananias and Sapphira's death is that it had to be crushed early because if this type of corruption had started in the roots, had started at the base, it goes throughout all the church. Well, then you might have the question, as, as I did, well, why doesn't God deal with us that harshly now? Well, I think we're out here somewhere now. I think we're, we're generations, the tree is much bigger. And so, yes, we still hear of, of people uh, and churches having corruption and God closing some of their doors and things natural, natural things possibly happening to churches. Um, but it's not, at the, it's not at the very root. It's not at, right at the very beginning. And so that's my, my best guess at the explanation of the harshness of their discipline. Um, but, but we don't actually fully know. It, and that's not, the, uh, that's not the focus of this passage anyways. The fact that they are dealt with, and it's actually only a few verses... It's kind of quick and doesn't focus there. Uh, unfortunately, like I said, there's still skin. There's still sin and scandal in our church. Now, I'm not saying our church that I know of, but in the big C church today, there's still sin and scandal. Uh, but thousands of years later, uh, the, the disease of the church is possibly still the same, and that's selfishness. We as a church and people that go to church are selfish. I'm selfish. I have selfish tendencies. I try to get mine. I look out for me. But when we are selfish, we can't care about others. And when we are selfish, we stop caring about others. So I ask you, church, what is the things that you're selfish with? What are the things that you would like to be perceived as righteousness, but really know yourself that they're much different? What is the status that you are hoping for, but really you know what kind of person you are? I will be the first to say that there is usually a gap between what people see me as and who I really am. This is even more true when you become a pastor at a church. I was not aware of this. But the first time I was a pastor at a church and I told somebody I worked at a church and they had just finished swearing and began to apologize, I was like, why would you apologize? I'm just a guy. But now I was viewed as a guy that works at a church. And there's some there's something about working at a church where people view you as being more holy or you can't be exposed to certain things. I don't fully understand in it. I don't encourage it or participate in it that much, but I see it sometimes to the point of comedy. For example, one time I was in an elevator with a guy and we were talking and we were stopping at almost every floor and I don't remember what my floor was, but it was high. And he asked me what I was doing at that particular place and I was there for a conference as a youth pastor. And he found out I was at a conference as a youth pastor, and he had remembered that he had just swore. And he apologized for swearing. And then he swore about his swearing and began to apologize again. 
the doors opened to the elevator. It was my stop, and I said, have a nice day, and I enjoyed a smile as you guys did as well. But one of the first takeaways we can have from Ananias and Sapphira is that one thing that would help our church and help the church community is if we recognized and confessed our own sin. If Ananias and Sapphira had come to Peter and said, we are struggling with this sin, we're, we're thinking we kind of wanted it to be deceitful here, I think the story really would have been different. It's a conversation. But instead, Ananias and Sapphira do what they had, and notice there's not even a chance for Ananias and Sapphira's repentance. It's over right now. So let me say what I'm not saying. I'm not saying as a church that we need to glorify sin, celebrate sin, or even have high tolerance for sin. But acknowledging it and making it known would actually unify us. It would help us to find out that there's others struggling with a lot of the same things. And it would help us to find out that there's some people who have struggled with the same thing and they're further down the road at working out, our own, at working out their own salvation. So let me assure you, as Ike who stands before you and gets called pastor sometimes, that I'm just a guy. I'm just a sinner. And like I said last week, it is very humbling every week to stand up here, to have anything to do with God's church. I am a sinner. I struggle with appetites of all kinds. I sometimes am angry as a father. I struggle with self-control. I struggle with confessing my own sin. But the confession is there. And I know that you knowing that is not intimidating to me because that's what the church is here for. A bunch of sinners all in the same place. So confess and recognize your sin would also change your expectation. When we're part of the church body, we remember that we are part as a sinner and the being saved. And if you're in a room with a bunch of sinners, you would expect that some of them would probably sin. Sure, we can be on our best behavior, but sin always happens. Far too often I hear Christians say that are Christians about talking about other Christians. How could that person, can you believe what so-and-so did? I mean, it's a, it's a sin. I, I guess I can. Yeah, I, I can get there pretty quickly. And this is why we all need Jesus. We can't even manage our own sin. I had it said to me once, Ike, even if you lived a thousand years, you still wouldn't figure out your own sin. Oh, really? Like, I'd like to think, I mean, I just turned 40. I know, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> All right, thanks. That's enough. Uh, I just turned 40, and I like to think that I'm getting better, and I'm going to do better. But if I really look at, like, my history of sin, you know, like when you pull up your medical history, Isaac has a history of, and it fills in the blank, Isaac has a history of sinning with the same stuff he sinned with for about 20 years. And we'll probably struggle with that for the next, oh, dang it, I need a Savior. I need somebody to save me from myself. I really wish it wasn't that way, but that's really why Christ came and he died, to save us from our sins while we were still sinning. It's no surprise. So as you sit in this place, the church, as you're part of the church, it shouldn't surprise us that we have sinners here and some of us are going to sin while we're together even. And you can't fix it yourself. Uh, but as we go through this we, and we start to recognize as a sinner and how we function around other sinners, 
it leads to something usually called conflict. And in James 4, I'll read it to you, James 4, 1 through 10, it talks a little bit about this idea of, of not only conflict, but what we do as sinners. James 4, 1 through 10, if you're a quick flipper. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come up from your desires that battle within you? You desire, you desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, and you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask. When you ask, you, ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures, you adulterous people. Do you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be friends with the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the Scripture says without reason that he is, he's jealous, jealously longs for the Spirit he, because he causes to dwell... Wow, let me start that over. Verse 5. Or, he, or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the Spirit he, causes, he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. After we read in James, the author sets the stage that all the problems are the first remedy. The first remedy to all of our problems are humbleness and submission. Submission and humbleness doesn't come easy. Many times we watch our sin or we do wrong or we've wronged somebody else and we will even yell at somebody and how they respond to our wrongdoing. Remember the idea of planks and specks? One of those verses from long ago. The idea of a plank in my own eye while I try to remove the speck out of my brother's. And when it comes to actually doing conflict in the church, <clears throat> we also remember that selfishness is probably the root. And humility is always going to be part of the solution. The solution probably won't start with a sinner saying that they can't believe what the other sinner did. One thing I, I hear often in youth ministry is parents also saying they can't believe what their student has done or what other students have done to their student. Now, as a parent myself and dealing with many teens and families, there isn't a lot that I can't believe. I don't know if I'm unshockable, but I would say that I've seen a few things. But before a parent says the phrase, or before you all out there as a parent say the phrase, or a grandparent, that you can't believe what your son or daughter or grandson or granddaughter has done. Just pump the brakes for a second. You can't believe. What sin is so far out there that you can't believe your son or daughter did it? Now, they might have acted it out differently than you, did it in a style that you couldn't even do when you were a teenager. I get that. But the sin that they're actually committing, what sin is so far out there that they couldn't, you can't believe it as a parent? I bet it's not many. And the Bible I read says the, the son's sin isn't that different from the father's. You can't believe that your kid is sinful. 
Ken Green, one of the former pastors here, he was also my professor, professor? professor in youth ministry, shared many stories of shocking things that parents and students shared with him. However, I never saw him personally be shocked. I asked him about it one day, and I wasn't even 20 years old yet. And I said, Ken, like, why, why are you never shocked by any of this? And he goes, Ike, I've come to expect that sinners are going to sin. So I'm always ready for a sinner to share a sinful story. He didn't say this with disappointment. He almost said it with the idea of anticipation. Almost as if sinning and sharing, or not sinning, but sharing about sin was a good thing. His attitude has stuck with me for a good many years. In light of conflict, I will also say that there have been been many examples to me that have been very advantageous. When I was a teen, I can remember reading through Matthew 18 and how to do conflict. The idea that if you have an issue with someone, that you go to that person first. And if they don't listen, then you bring a friend. And if they don't listen, you bring more. But in my teens, I never really saw that modeled. Maybe it was modeled and I just didn't pay attention. That's probably the case. If you saw what clothing I wear as a teenager, I didn't really care about much. That wasn't outside of me. But in my early college days, when I lived in the units uh, at Crossroads College, we all had unit duties. And one of my unit duties this particular week was to take the garbage out. Well, it was snowy, it was winter, and I got sick of doing it. And so one day... I decided to shortcut my duties. Well, at this point in my life, my parents, when I was in ninth grade, had bought a place out of of the town, and one of my jobs back home was to burn the garbage. And I was like, well, I know how this goes. Like, you can burn garbage in the middle of winter, and like, if you do it just right, it burns so hot so fast that you don't even melt the snow. So I had this great idea in college that I would do the same thing. And behind the units, if you can picture it in your head, if you've ever been across the college, right behind the walking path, And most of the garbage was pizza boxes anyways. Guy's unit, that's what it's going to be, okay? And toilet paper rolls. It's all cardboard. Anyways, I set it back there. I light it on fire, and it gets big in a hurry. And it creates quite a spectacle, and I see people coming out. And I know by how big it is and how much it's all caught on fire that within seconds it's not going to be that big anymore. And so like a boss at the movie where there's a big explosion, I just walk off. You know, like, I did that, and the flames are behind me, and I had in my brain, like, that was really cool. And I walked down the computer lab and did homework, and I came back from the computer lab, and my little icon on my phone was blinking that I had a voicemail. It is Mark Como, dean of students, would like to meet with me tomorrow about a fire that happened behind the units. (laughs) All right. So I get to go see Mark Como the next day. Two weeks in a row, Mark Como, by the way. Uh, and I walk down there, and he says, well, here's your punishment for starting a fire. He says, you can have this punishment, or you can take it to committee, which is myself, Mark, and several professors, and a few students, and then they'll see what your punishment is. And I said, no, there's no need for that. And I just took the punishment that I had. But it was the first time I had seen in my own life, it handed, Matthew 18 handed directly to me. If I don't like this, if I don't believe in this punishment, I can go to another group of people. And I thought that was fairly fascinating that it was built into the college's handbook of how they were going to handle conflict. A couple short years after I was here at Marion, I can remember one particular elders meeting where there was a conflict. Well, this uh, particular elders meeting, I was a young person and I had 
no stake in the game, but I had to be at the elders' meeting, and so I was the fly in the wall. This particular disagreement was of doctrine, and I'm actually pretty sure that both the people that were involved are in the room, so I have to be pretty good on how I retell the story. But they both had very strong feelings about this particular issue, and things were getting heated, and I can remember thinking, oh boy, it's about to go down, right? And I'm sitting there, and through the length of the, length of the discussion, never once did either person lose respect. Even though they had very strong feelings one way, through the entire disagreement, nobody was disrespectful. I had never seen that before. I didn't know that it was possible. And in fact, when the conflict got done, they both agreed to disagree. They prayed together, and we all went home. I remember it was like 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night, and I was like, I'm going to be up for hours. I didn't know that this was possible. I didn't know that you could have maturity in, disres- er, in uh, a disagreement and still be friends at the end of the night. It's absolutely fascinating. So thank you to the elders who handled that one. Uh, I am also great, uh, grateful for this group of elders that we have currently. Um, we have had to go through some, I'll say, tumultuous waters uh, together, and we've come out pretty good. I'm grateful for our group of elders and that they taught me how to navigate conflict uh, through our sinful world and how to do it without unwavering in our belief. Uh, and in fact, we have uh, drawn some very hard lines on things, and some of the things we've even gone through have helped us write our new bylaws and, and pass some different policies than we never would have before just to protect us. I have many stories, many more stories about conflict and the navigation of it through uh, the Matthew 18 principles. Usually it turns all right. It turns out all right for those that go through Matthew 18. Uh, and usually those that pick a different route, it doesn't go so well. Uh, we like to talk about it, it seems like, with every other person than the person who can actually do something about it, the person you have a problem with. So if I could encourage you, uh, as a passive-aggressive Minnesotan possibly, to set aside your selfish desires and go to the person first, the person you have a conflict with. Every now and then I find out about two people in our church that had a conflict, and they just went to each other and talked. And I want to give them a award. Like, good job, you did it! You know? Because that's the way it's supposed to work. And actually, usually they're better friends, There's a more intimate relationship there. Because when conflict is done right in this community, it does lead to intimacy. And when it's done wrong, it can turn into a cancer. Uh, Like our story in Ananias and Sapphira, uh, they died and were quickly rushed away. Their bodies were quickly rushed away. And then we read uh, in the next paragraph, which I'll read for you if I still have. Going back to Acts 5. Verse 12, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought in sick to the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at last Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as as they passed by. Crowds gathered, also formed from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Sin has to be dealt with quickly so that the real work of the church can get done. As we sit in here today, 
there is more people out there who are not in a church or part of a church or part of a community than I'm okay with. And, and they need it. They need it. They, they don't even know they need it. But everybody wants to know truth. Every, every single person wants to know truth. But sometimes we fight about silly things. We sit here and fight about possibly carpet color or whether we should paint the parking lot lines white or yellow. I made all those up. Nobody's fighting about that. But, but we fight about funny things. Uh, in some of our latest elders' reading, uh, the, the developed terminology was, is it cancer or is it a cold? You have to decide as a church and as you, as you enter into conflict, is this a cancer that needs to be addressed immediately? Or is it a cold and it's probably something not worth the energy? The scriptures say several times in early, early in Acts that several people were being added to their number daily. If, some, if several people were being added to this church daily, let's just say a person, we were adding one person to our church daily, that one year would be how many people? 365. If we had 365 people here in one year, I'd be 41 then, uh, we would have to be at two services. Well, within two years, I don't know if we're rebuilding. I don't know what we're doing. That's more than we have to for capacity. Well, as the early church is running into the same logistical problems, and if you keep reading in Acts, you'll see that. They have to delegate some of these things off. And so we as the church, if we have sin in our lives that are keeping us from being the big C church and keeping us from helping add numbers daily, it's keeping us from what we're really here to do. The story of Ananias and Sapphira, over, even though that they die and it's kind of a big deal, it's very short. It's not the thrust of that part. The church dealt with it quickly, and they dealt with the deceit, and it comes up quickly, and then they just got back to work. There's a lot of people out there who need to hear the loving story of Jesus. So church, if I could encourage you in closing... As a sinner, confess. Confess soon. Confess quickly. I know that it's terrible, and I know that somebody's going to find out what you have going on. But confess and repent. Turn from it. And along when it comes to conflict, and we function as the church, get out of your shocked stage soon. Try not to be a person who says, I can't believe that they would do that. It's a sinner who's doing sin. Because at that point, then we can get back to doing what the church is made to do. And that's the work of God. That's the sharing the love of Jesus. That's the idea of sinners being saved while they're still sinning. So let me pray for us. And then we'll continue into communion. Lord, I pray for your big C church, your church worldwide. I pray that numbers are still being added daily. I pray that sin is being dealt with. I pray that we're being wise in navigating conflict. I thank you for our community of believers. Thank you for what it does for raising us up in truth. Thank you for what it does for helping raise families. But Lord, I would just pray that you would help us navigate even our own sin. Confess quickly. Lord, I pray that you'd put on us a heart for those that are out there, 
those that aren't even hearing this message, that we would love and be intentional, that we would pick people and be intentional to have intentional conversations. Lord, thank you for not just putting up with us, but sending your son to die for us. It's your name I pray. Amen.